how secure is your credit card? Anna knows because it's her job to watch it fail. She went from architect to lecturer to white hat hacker. Let's hear from her on how the physical boundaries of chips and devices are pushed. I'm Francesco. And I'm Dalin. And this is Work It. Good afternoon, and thanks for joining us, Anna. Hi, Anna. So, Anna, you work as a security consultant and tester, basically, yes. right? You do, quote-unquote, white hat hacking. Yeah, pretty much. For corporates who want to test out their security systems, and this ranges from uh, everything from biometrics to payment cards to secure identity, so on and so yes, forth, right? Yes, that's right. So other IoT cool. devices as well. I would start from a different angle first. You're an architect. Okay, yes, I am. Turning into someone breaking into architecture. Yeah, yeah. Too certain. How did that happen? (laughs) Okay. I mean, so I went to university for architecture. I trained as an architect. I worked as an architect. And if you know the stereotype of architects in Asia, it's it's a hard life. It's not easy. There's literally zero work-life balance. And it was really a struggle for me. And I watched, uh, especially a lot of my seniors, they would work, you know, like a year, two years, and then they would get burnt out, quit their job, travel the world till their money ran out for like six months, and then just do that over and over again for years. And I'm like, that's not a life that I want to live. I mean, it's great that you could quit your job, and then six months you travel, you do whatever. But it kind of wasn't my focus. And so from that, I found a job uh, lecturing, actually, and teaching university. Um, I taught at SUTD, Singapore University of Technology and Design. So I taught their first year classes, some of their architecture courses. So I was teaching design, design engineering. And so from that, I did a lot more mechanical engineering work. So I was building everything from robotics to devices small and large to building structures you know, using CNC machining everything under the sun pretty much with more physical hands-on work, which I found really rewarding and I really loved what I did. And from there, I kind of got poached slightly. Um, Someone approached me for the job that I have now and I was like, really? Why would you want me? I I know nothing about computer science. I didn't study computer science. I, I have no computer science background. I barely program. And so from that, I went for the interview. And of course, because I'm not a computer science major, so my manager now in the interview couldn't ask me those kinds of questions, but he did more of like a logical testing. Mm -hmm. And so because of just the way that I view problems and the way I think through things and the way that I would solve things based on all these tests that he gave me, then he offered me a job. And he's like, I don't care that you don't know anything. I just need someone who can think outside of the box and who is willing to learn and put in the time to learn. And he's like, I will train you from the ground up, not an issue at all. And so that's where I ended up where I am. My manager is an amazing person to work for. So it was luck and a lot of interesting circumstances that pushed me towards it. Because he also didn't want purely computer engineers. So even before me, there were other, um, there was another mechanical engineer that was hired. So he hired me more for my mechanical engineering kind of background a little bit. Yeah. 
And then he had like one or two computer science people. So he wanted to build a more robust, rounded team. Yeah, I mean, I fully understand that because as as an engineer myself, we build things according to certain specifications and we don't really think around those specifications. Of course, there are certain areas that are a bit more, you know, security critical. So we, we, we have quite extensive work done in that direction. But I also do understand that there is also something missing there. And you guys are looking for that missing piece of the puzzle. Kind of. Right. I hope. Yeah. I hope we you, do. You are. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. It's, it's fun and different and not, oh, honestly, if you asked me 10 years ago, like when I was in university, oh, is this where you're going to see yourself? I never would have saw, seen myself where I am now, doing what I do now. It's very interesting that we're seeing a trend here with a lot of people they were interviewing, really just starting in one direction and then ended up in something completely different. And I, I would say that it goes against your, your common conceptions of how do you get into a job? Because right now the jobs are so specialized that you would think that, okay, if I don't have a certain diploma, certificate, slash uh, degree, and so on, I wouldn't be able to enter that field. But at the end of the day, you, you still have that chance. Yeah, I think... As long as you have the aptitude and the willingness in any job, it's not just what I do, but if you have the willingness and the aptitude in any job to learn and to be humble and don't be arrogant about what you know, a lot of people are willing to teach you and train you even from the very basic beginning. Like they're willing to put in that time if you're willing to. Like I think for my manager, even not just this manager, but my, my previous bosses, everyone I've worked for, they hate arrogant people. <laughs> no, they really do. So if you're arrogant, they don't want to put the time into you. But if you are humble and you're willing and be like, I know nothing and I'm going to ask you a lot of stupid questions over the next few months. If you're okay with that and you don't mind answering every small little thing I'm going to ask you, it's a great, perfect working learning relationship. That uh, reminds me of something I heard from uh, a manager who said, I want to hire stars, not divas. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's very true. So very cool. Thank you for sharing that journey of, you know, moving from your architecture education to, as Fra put it, breaking into architecture, systems architecture, I guess, in this case. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about uh, the role, I think, um, you know, the work that you do, because this is, I think, something that a lot of people have a lot of curiosity about, but not a lot of knowledge of. Having engaged similar companies in the past, I appreciate there's a lot of confidentiality around the work being done. A lot of it has to do with, you know, things people are very paranoid about, identity, payments, so on and so forth. But could you maybe share I guess share a bit about your training, your on-the-job training, because this isn't something that you studied, as you mentioned. So, you know, what skills did you learn on the job and, and how's that helped you? And I guess how's your, you know, way of thinking and thought process helped you with that? And then maybe move into what a typical day at the office looks like for you. Okay. So when we started with our on-job training, it was really starting from the ground up, learning and figuring out what are the kinds of products that our clients have. So in a roundabout way, right, let's let's look at credit cards, for example. Everyone has a credit card. And so, you know, 10, 15 years ago, companies started moving away from magnetic strips, right? So they started moving towards um, NFC chips. And so we look at NFC chips 
So we're ethical white hat hackers. So we try to push the extremities and the limits of all of these NFC chips to see what's what they could do. Any smart card, smart chip. What can they withstand in terms of security from a software perspective, a hardware perspective, and a crypto perspective? So it's all three that we cover all around. And so for training initially, it's to understand, you know, I used a credit card for a lot of years, but I didn't know the specifics of what it was. So a lot of it was learning the basics of what an ICC is, uh, an integrated circuit card, right? And how does it operate when you do a touch payment versus, you know, you insert your chip payment into the terminal, all that kind of stuff. And it's learning when they do those transactions, what happens. Because when you tap or when you insert your card, right, that that happens within, you know, one second, two seconds, right? But then 10,000 things happen within that one second touch, right? And so it's just learning everything that happens within those small little quick signals that are transferred back Mm -hmm. and forth. So understanding how the card works, the basics of that, and then after you understand what the chip does, all the different commands and what information it might hold, not hold, it's encryption, then I moved on to more basic programming. So we program in C, right? So uh, Mm -hmm. most computer computer science students will study C. Uh, So I had never studied C. So the syntax of C language was very crazy to me initially, uh, coming from a perspective of not knowing anything or understanding anything. So it's just understanding when you do a line of code, what does it mean? What's the intent behind it? You have to do like, when you do one plus one, you're not just coding one plus one. It's like, I have this data point of one. Then I have to have this data point of I'm additioning something. Then I have to have the data point of another one. Then I have to have the data point of, but I want all of these to come together to then create something else. So every single one of those is a line of code. Like when I've written out my whole software coding, it's like, you know, thousands and thousands of lines that we go through. It's not just one simple quite popular in today a lot of younger kids in university they use those um, like raspberry pi mm. for programming and stuff mm-hmm. and those are yeah. kind of what we consider more like plug and plug and play kind uh, because you the command itself is already there like oh i want it to play i want this color so they just plug and drop it in so what we do is one is like two steps before that even where before you get this particular function within it we program everything so it was learning the syntax learning why do you do things in certain orders that you do them in? Because that's very, very important. Because, you know, you have to indicate first, not even like, oh, I want to draw out this one data point. I have to be like, I want to turn on the system. So even before that, you have to run all these other steps. Learning all of that, I think before I was fully confident to really understand what I was doing and what I was writing. Because initially, since I had no background, a lot of it was copy and paste. And be like, okay, so I run it. What does this do? Uh, or at least that's how, how my mentor was teaching me. And it was like copy and paste. And then you run it and you see what happens. What do you get out? What's your response? And see within that those lines of code that you write, what are the changes? What are the differences? What do they all do? And so, yeah, it was, it was a lot of trial and error for the first <laughs> few months. Because I didn't even work on a physical project till I think I had been in the job for like four months, I think. Before my, my my manager was like, okay, I think you can handle this. But of course, my mentor checks everything step by step. Because sometimes you might write a line of code that to me makes sense from my oh, yeah. perspective. But then when you plug it in and you play it in the system, it's just like, no, 
this doesn't work. You've like miswritten something. And, and so he had to check everything. And then because we have to record all of our data, right, that we, because we're attacking um, ICC, mm-hmm. so we have to record all that data. So when you're trying to draw that information, you know, you write particular code lines to save all of this data. But then sometimes you're missing or not capturing certain points when you attack. And yeah, so my, my mentor had to like watch and check and be like, no, don't miss this data. It's important. It'll help you when we write our reports later, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So took a while to get into it and to really be confident or comfortable. So after like my first two projects where my mentor really one-on-one went through everything with me, I think around June, stuff roughly about around June, July last year. So about six, seven months in, then I started running projects independently. And it's just as and when I would have an issue, then I would ask my mentor or my manager to come and check and see what I was doing. Because there's so many variable data oh, yeah. that you could get wrong when you're trying to run the code that I can't always see. Because I look at the same lines of text, like the lines of code every day, the same lines. So I might not see what I did wrong. And you always need a fresh pair of eyes to come in and look. It's like anyone who writes an essay, right? If you've written like your thesis, right? Like a 20,000 word thesis, you've looked at it day in, day out for six months. You don't know what's wrong. So you always have to get, you know, mm-hmm. your your supervisor or someone else to come and peer review it in case there's things that you've missed. Yeah. So it's easy to make mistakes, I think. Like, you, sh- you should know, Francesco. Oh, I know very well. I know very well. <laughs> I don't like it, but I know it. But that's, that's always what surprised me about the sort of job that you do is that you have something that is completely a black box to you. Like, you don't know what's inside of it. And by just stressing it in certain ways with certain lines of code, you understand pretty much everything about the product. Yeah. And that is so staggering to me because we do a lot of reverse engineering ourselves sometimes, you know, when, when something goes wrong, when you're designing a chip and, and all that. And knowing everything, okay, knowing everything about the design, it's hard sometimes to find the issues. You guys do the same without knowing anything about the design and just by really trying different things, trying to be like, oh, okay, that guy probably thought this way when he was designing it. I'm going to think in a completely different way. And that different way is going to allow me to understand everything, but also to crack whatever you've done and to teach you that, you know, you've done things according to how they should be done, but those can be hacked. Yeah, they can be. I mean, so um, the governing body of, let's say, ICCs across the world is EMVCO, which was the Visa Mm -hmm. MasterCard um, that they originally set and up. Uh, uh, it's it's you know it's a known international organization body. Mm-hmm. So they they of course have their requirements. But then individual corporations or companies will then have their own extra added levels of security. So it 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 really depends. So that's why for for us we are a team because it's not just me working on one individual project. There are other members because we always have to have our like our analyst because they're the ones that are truly fluent in code. And so they can really spot all of the security red flags and everything. And they know where they are and they find it. And, and it's like you said, a lot of times what we do is a bit of brute force because, you know, we are trying to push to the extremities as far as possible. Where in a normal circumstance, technically, this isn't what should happen. Yep. Right. I mean, like, let's say in the more traditional sense, as an example, right, when you used to use your credit cards, then you would Im- they do the magnetic stripe or sometimes you'd input your uh, pin code uh, when you're using a credit card. And so, you know, basically what we do is we try to get 
the the terminal to accept the credit card with the wrong pin, right? Like it's just one 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 one. I hope no one sets their credit card pins as one 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 one. Wait, what? <laughs> I hope they don't. I mean, I, I feel like there probably is someone, but I'm, please change your pin if that's your pin. Don't right, use one 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 one. I'm going to change it to then. <laughs> that is so much um, better. It's called exposed us. Yes, yeah. everyone's exposed. But um, so like we try to force it where it'll accept the wrong pin. Like we'll just do one one once, and you we just brute force it really all the way, running it over and over. So when we're running a card, we run it to the limit, the maximum limit possible, because usually that's set as like F F F F F. Generally. 0xf yeah yeah and so um we run it as many times as possible and then because for pins maybe right you have a reset right and you have three three tries before you have to reset it with the correct pin right so we try to stop it that oh it's not even going to update that it gave the wrong pin it it's hilarious what we do sometimes <laughs> it's it's fun in in a hilarious way but it, it's serious of course because these are products usually what we work on you know they're not going into market for several years so we're usually a, ahead of what is currently available but it's yeah it's some companies are really good like they're they've invested so much time and energy and money into really good security that there are some companies that are really secure and really safe. Like it doesn't matter what we do, we'll never break them. And then there's some companies that are like, you know, maybe they're younger companies. They're just starting out, so they have a lot to learn. And so that's where it's also a working relationship between us and them, uh, which would be kind of your job, right? We're like, oh, I'm sorry, you've been working on this for two years, but you have this security flaw, and then we give it back to them, and then they have to fix it. And, I mean, that could be six months to a year added on development back and forth, back and forth. Plus, why did we miss it? How do yeah. we make sure that we don't miss it in the future? Yeah. Like, there are some companies that, yeah. on the security point of view, they have some really strict requirements. Like, a, imagine as if there is a project, project ongoing. In parallel to that, there's going to be a security project attached to that project that just makes sure that, that the security is good enough. So, you know, there is, there is a lot of work that, that is done already, and still a lot of things get missed. So, yeah, it's... I mean, in any product, it's there's millions and millions yeah. of lines of code. You, It's very easy to miss something small. And it's no one's fault. It's just because you look at things, the same things, every day, day yeah. in and day out, and it's easy to miss. But also, who would think that, for example, you know, you can heat up your credit card and then suddenly it's going to accept 1111. You know, there is this, all this crazy, yeah. crazy stuff that you would never expect. And then suddenly you hear someone saying that and, or doing that, and you go like, okay, where is my money gone? I mean, generally, I would say most credit card companies or most banks are pretty good because they have their yeah. own set of like AI, right? Which is separate from what we do. This is this is something that every credit card company does. So I'll use like DBS, for example, right? So DBS, their AI is pretty uh, capable and it really tracks 24-7 your purchases, what you're doing. So anytime there's like a like an unusual purchase, the AI will immediately flag it. And generally in Singapore, at least for DBS, they'll like, send you a text message right that second and they'll they might like put your card on pause until you agree oh i've actually done this purchase or not so i would say it's not just the card itself but also individual banks are quite they're quite on the ball also about checking and ensuring that you know their clients aren't having like their credit card stolen like to be honest for me right it's actually happened twice uh, for my credit card with dbs that there were flag charges which weren't done by me it was done by like someone in america and within like two seconds, I got a message, oh, your card's been blocked now. 
and I, of course, the, 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 charge, the charges were, um, were stopped and I, I wasn't charged anything for it. But it's happened like twice, I want to say, in like the last five, six years. So it doesn't also matter how secure your card itself may be. You always have to have so many different levels of checks and balances yep. all the time. Yeah, I've uh, been on the side of setting those before. <laughs> but let's take a step back and uh, I think just, just to kind of go back to a little bit of basics here for the listeners. You know, hacking generally is quite complex and people tend to have a picture in their mind that uh, it's, you know, people staring at this black screen with green text is what you see in all the <laughs> movies and TV shows. And obviously that's wrong. Uh, and also that's mostly software. Now you do a combination of software and hardware to exploit vulnerabilities in things like payment cards and identity systems. Yes. But, you know, we touched a little bit on this on using different materials, for example, to mimic mimic human skin for biometrics or playing with temperatures and all of that to exploit vulnerabilities there. So could you tell the, the listeners a bit more about what it means to, to be hacking hardware, really? Because that's not quite so obvious or not quite so apparent in what that might look like. Okay, so for hacking hardware specifically, so what happened? You can do an end-to-end. I mean, I know you do both, so how they kind of fit into each other. We usually will receive blank cards that, you know, they have no, like, they're not tied to anything because it's a prototype. Um, And so when we receive these products in, we have to get at the ICC chip that's inside. Um, So we have to expose it. And once we've done that, we will start to attack the chip with uh, generally... Not always. There's various ways of attacking it and changing the temperature on specific points within a chip. So people use like lasers, uh, EMF waves. There's a whole host of variety of different methods that most companies will use. Like even, I think even your basic entry level cybersecurity company probably has at least three or four methods in, in, in how they do it. And so when we're attacking, we look at a chip because, you know, within a chip, you have your RAM, you have your microprocessors, you have all the different points on it, right? And so we look and attack specific points within that in a roundabout way, generally temperature. It's a focused temperature beam, I suppose, is, is a very open-ended way to say it. And so we attack specific ways and different points to find vulnerabilities within the hardware, right? So if anyone's ever done microelectronics or if you've seen a basic silicon chip you know you you have the 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 bus lanes you have the pathways then you have the individual processors attached and so every single point there's generally some kind of vulnerability within that chip i mean of course we're talking about like nano size so it's 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 small it's very minute but there are some vulnerabilities within that so usually within the chip we will scan the whole thing right so we'll look at every single point any connectors, anything within that. Some companies make it harder for us based on the materials that the ICC is made out of. Um, I mean, everybody uses silicon as the base, but they'll do um, other types of materials inside of it to change it, or they will put like a casing kind of around it that we can't physically break into. Or some companies will do it where their chips are very brittle so that the minute you try to expose it or you touch it, it'll break. 
and then the the card is basically useless at that point. They have a lot of different methods to try to make the hardware secure. So even within the hardware, you know, you have all your different companies. Let's let's look at like you know you have Intel, you have Microsoft, you have TSMC. They all are microchip building companies, right? Th- those are all known across the world. They all build similar things, but in different ways. And so usually like our clients will look at all of these different companies to decide what's the best combination from a hardware perspective mm-hmm. for what they could use. Yeah, I guess in that case, it's more of a overall production between different, mm-hmm. like, you know, the people that you mentioned, just for who is not familiar with that, they work at different levels of a production of a chip. So they might be the person designing it. So the company designing it and then the company producing it. But then at the end of the day, the final result is a combination of all these together, right? Yeah. So there are multiple layers, like you said earlier, that you can... There's so many permeations, yeah. right? And and when our clients come to us, they don't tell us anything. But that's the point, is so that right. we don't know anything. Because it is a black box that we have to attack. And so the permeations of the hardware is is millions of different versions or varieties that exist out there Mm -hmm. and and so we have to try to the best of our capability or ability to expose the chip do everything we can possible i mean some so some like for example their microchips they encase it in like this hard plastic that you can't even break into you know they they make the chips brittle there's just so many different varieties or they they hide so some some people might some companies or corporations might make the sensitive areas of their chip. They put what we call like a lot of sensors because sensors are a normal common thing. Most people should know like a light sensors or a temperature sensor, right? So they'll put these sensors across the whole chip, which basically means it, from a hardware perspective, there's nowhere that we can attack that won't set off the sensor. Because the minute the sensor is set off, quite often most companies will call, um, call up a program that will kill the card immediately once this is triggered. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's another safety feature that they, they have to, to try to stop any unethical hackers out there that would try to break into <laughs> Which it. Which we are not. Well, you are not. <laughs> we're not. Definitely not. I mean, I think we're quite proud of like what we do because we really try to you know give our clients the best, safest product possible to make yeah. sure that they're meeting the minimum requirement, at least the minimum. But most of them go beyond that to try to keep their own clients safe and secure. As the chips get more and more sophisticated, hackers get more and more sophisticated. Have you ever encountered a situation in which, uh, you know, a safety measure was too sensitive, just triggered by what might be normal use or borderline normal use? Um, You know, for example, like if it's a heat, light or temperature sensor, just leaving the chip in a hot car, for example, could damage it. And... Uh, you know, that impacts usability of the end product. And you'll have to kind of calibrate how sensitive that safety measure has to be, right? There's there's always a balance that has to be struck, I yeah. think. Thus far, I have not heard of that happening. Just because in general, when the chips are made, right? So they're sitting within the plastic layer of your credit card, right? Or, or whatever your smart card is. They sit within that layer of plastic plus the gel, plus the other materials within it that keep it relatively cool internally where the microchip might sit. So Mm -hmm. it shouldn't, as long as it's not 
outside normal operating parameters, it shouldn't set it off. And I mean, I think for a baseline, I feel like normal operating parameters is probably like anywhere from maybe freezing, like the freezing point of water, so zero Celsius, to probably the boiling point of water, so 100 degrees Celsius. I feel like that would be considered normal parameters. Because like, you, sh- you should know better what temperatures you- you've produced it at to like run nominally. Yeah. But I know if it's too cold, they'll also stop running too. Yeah. And it's like you have to heat it up between your hands. <laughs> there is a balance. <laughs> and do you feel like being in the field that you are in right now changed the way you look at things during your daily life? So let's say you're getting a bit more paranoid about the way you use your credit card or the way you use any other device in your possession like a happy-go-lucky look at the positive outcomes of life per se (laughs) i would hope that's how i look at it i'm not that paranoid i mean and generally just because i myself have been in that situation where my credit card was used for purchases and because i saw the response of my bank so i think it would be dependent upon of course maybe your bank who your bank is but because i've seen the immediate response of dbs right i generally don't have concerns and If, you know, the AI picks it up, the DBS customer service picks it up, usually within like two, three hours, they've already like canceled your card, they've blocked all future charges, they've already reissued you like a new card. So because of that, I guess I have a a sense of ease that I'm not so concerned because I lived through it. I feel like if maybe someone who hadn't done that or, or hadn't had to go through it, they would probably be super paranoid. But I mean, other things that maybe I... Not saying my spending habits are different, but there are things that maybe I do that are different. So like I generally, you know, no one wants to use a magnetic uh, swipe anymore. Generally, no one wants to. Oh. What? What do you mean? Oh. No, I'm kidding. I, I mean, unless, okay, unless you're like in, okay, only in America do I generally find people. And Japan. Oh, yeah, in Japan, you're right. Oh, I didn't think about that. Japan and America, they still use the magnetic stripe cards, right? So the reason why they're, they're trying to phase that out internationally across the world is just because the information on there is stagnant. Like, and it is encrypted, but it's just stagnant, right? Whereas with your NFC chips, it's uh, dynamic crypto. So it'll constantly change every single transaction. It's something Mm -hmm. different. It doesn't stay the same. There's always an update from generally the terminal. So when you do an NFC transaction, it's what we call an online transaction, right? So it's gone online to the network, to the server, to the bank to make sure that this is safe. With a magnetic stripe transaction, usually that's an offline transaction. So there's no double check back from the bank server. Right. So I mean, so I I avoid using magnetic stripe transactions, I guess. Um, I use maybe more NFC tap or insert transactions, I guess I do. um, I mean, I know the new one um, that's come out that's quite popular is like uh, Google Pay or like Apple Pay. And then you can use your NFC chip in your phone to make a payment. And then that's supposed to be also another dynamic change in um, your credit card number each transaction Mm -hmm. on their end you know something kind of like that so I guess because of all these things I don't generally worry I also like to believe in the human population of being good (laughs) optimism here some optimism you cannot afford that in your job (laughs) (laughs) I don't know I don't know. I'm also kind of like, I have nothing of worth. Why would anyone ever want to go after me? You know? Millennials for the win. (laughs) 
No, I'm serious. Like, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I really have, like, nothing of words. I'd probably be like, uh, the most expensive thing I own is probably, like, my laptop. That, that's it, you know? Like, I, I don't own, like, a $4 million piece of artwork. Or, or I, I don't have, like, $10 million just sitting in the bank. Like, <laughs> your general <laughs> millennial definitely doesn't have that. More money, more problems. Yeah. Oh, yes. Maybe everyone should just spend all their money. So they have nothing of value. So no one will ever come after you. Uh, we're not giving out financial advice. <laughs> no, oh here. my gosh, just, uh, please don't yeah. do that. That is terrible. You, do that. you can listen to Nalin's other podcast for that. Yeah. I can kind of also address and follow up from your question in general, the card schemes, which are, you know, Visa, Master, so on and so forth, American Express. Union Pay, all of them. Yeah. yeah typically place the onus on the card issuer to prove yeah. fraud so if you claim that you know someone you know someone used your card without your knowledge or without your authorization uh it's generally up to your bank to prove if you're lying so the bank will have to accept liability for that transaction uh, unless they can prove that you are trying to defraud them in general good yeah. to know I mean, so that's why, like, if all of your expenditure within a two-week period, let's say it's in Singapore, right? And then all of a sudden there's this transaction going on in America. Mm-hmm. That's why your bank can be like, yeah, you're, you you haven't traveled. Especially in this time period of COVID, you have not traveled. There's no way you're in America making a purchase right now. Yeah, or if it's, like, an out of out of the ordinary. so Ordinary. You know, you- like, every week you order McDonald's, and then all of a sudden there's a Burger King order. They'll, they'll flag it and be like, this is not you. <laughs> What are you doing, man? <laughs> how not... have you turned your back on McDonald's? <laughs> I don't know you anymore. <laughs> I'd like to, to follow up a little bit more on the um, EMV chip, NFC chip, and mobile payments that you okay. talked about, saying that these are, you know, typically have dynamic encryption and mm-hmm. almost always authenticated online. Could yeah. you tell us a bit more about how this has changed your work and your industry? Uh, you know, moving from static magnetic stripe type encryption and everything to the dynamic encryption. And also just in general, how the nature of payments has has affected your work as well. So, you know, people more often than not are now buying stuff online where the card is not present, the physical encryption is not present. How has that affected your work? And, you know, how's your industry been been helping these, these companies and these, I guess, these use cases? Okay, so for our work, part of the changes have been because everything is a dynamic encryption, we have to continuously test and run with, I guess you call it different keys, mm-hmm. right? Um, and different encryption methods. So there's different types of ways that you can come up with your encryption keys. So from client to client, these are all different. Sometimes they may give us a hint to what they use. Sometimes they don't. And so we have to try and run so many different amalgamations that are possible so that we know what they do. Basic basic encryptions generally you know, are available online so people could read up and find out a bit more. But usually let's just say in a roundabout way you have your encryption key as like one two three four five six seven eight nine zero a b c d e f and then you can scramble that you can take only 
the left side of the, let's say, eight bytes, then you can take the right side of the eight bytes and you have to run them through different changes of those eight bytes and eight bytes and then recombine those to become a 16 byte code that's something different again. So we have to figure out, if, if the client doesn't tell us what it is, we have to figure out what those encryption methods are. Like, cause that's like the basic, you know, the simple ones that even they used, you know, in World War II for like the Enigma machine and all that, that that's like the basic encryption style that you might have your set of like 8-bit, 8-bit, and then you change and adjust, uh, or you do substitution. There's so many different methods. So in that regards for work-based, we have to be conscious and aware of all the different methods that there are out there. We have to know everything because what I explained was just, it's a very basic, very old school style what they do now is a lot more sophisticated and a lot more advanced. And so we always have to be reading, we have to be learning, we have to be studying. And like, cause some companies, you know, they will publish to us their, their latest studies or the research that they've been doing. And so we have to make sure we read through all the manuals and we have to read through everything to make sure we know what they are. So I guess the one nice thing is that our job's not stagnant. <laughs> Oh, for sure. <laughs> it's always changing and it's always different and we have to keep learning and we have to keep updating what we're doing which is good I think because if you did the exact same identical thing day in day out I think some people wouldn't like it some people do some people don't um, so in that way it's impacted us because we have not just dynamic encryption anymore now right the newest things that have been coming out that's available like on the market is biometrics right and so biometrics, you have another, like heat um, is another factor in terms of running the card. Because you have to not just recognize that you have your thumbprint there and it has to be the official thumbprint of the owner, but you also have to have the temperature to prove that it's not a corpse's finger that's like on it. Like there's, there's, there's true running blood underneath. And, and, and so there's a lot of different methods. Because even biometrics, that's just like one basic method there's so many that are out there that they're working on right now and it's crazy some of it which which is good and it's amazing and it's great that we keep progressing and we keep moving forward it's not great that you have unethical hackers who want to get into everything i mean but it's good because they push us and they make us work harder but it's also like you know why why there's so many more things you could be proud of that you did with your life why, why must you go and steal everyone's credit card information? And yeah. I thought you were happy because they're paying for your salary. No. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> they're well, not I mean, paying my salary. Partially. <laughs> indirectly. Let's put it that way. Or indirectly, they cause us to have a job, which is good, I suppose. But it's also kind of, I feel like because the people who feel the burn the most from unethical hackers is your middle class and your lower class. Oh, yeah, for sure. They're, they're like the most at-risk group, which it's terrible. They've worked blood, sweat, and tears for everything they have. Why yeah. do you want to go after this group of people? Because no offense, generally I find like rich people, they have everything and they're quite secure and everything is safe. Like they're generally not hackable per se because mm. they set up everything in a way with, you know, all the oh, whatever. They, they can withstand what you mean. They're more set up to withstand a hack. Yeah, uh, partially. Yeah, they're with more. They're more able to withstand. Whereas you know, usually the victims are middle class, lower class, and it's yeah, it's hard when you see that. That that's that's the bad thing, I suppose, of of the work and everything. There was a lady in Hong Kong that was was robbed of ninety million dollars 
something like that. Either 19 or 90, I don't remember. But yeah, she was quite old, very, very rich, and she got caught into a, I don't know what sort of cyber attack, and she lost something like that. Yeah. Like in million, in the order of millions. But yeah, I would assume that rich people is also a bit more careful about that, so they hire, you know, uh, people that are, that helps them to set up properly all their, the way they keep their financials. Yeah. Yeah, 42 millions. Oh, it was a phone scam. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Uh, but Anna, can you can you tell us how how do you use an orange peel to to enter my phone? Because we discussed about this. I think Nalin asked uh, asked about that earlier on as well, and I'm still a bit curious. How do you how do you tell the phone that underneath the peel of the banana or underneath the peel of the orange there is some blood flowing, and that you know it has the the right temperature for you to understand that it's not a dead orange but an alive orange. Initially, like let's say five, six years ago when biometrics was coming out and massively available like on iPhones. I think iPhones were like one of the first pioneers, right? Where you could use your thumbprint to unlock your phone. Um, And so at that time, initially, you could use like a banana peel because it wasn't always able to recognize. So what, because what they generally look for, right, is the ridges within your thumbprint. But in the initial stages of that technology, it wasn't as uh, secure because you could fake the ridges with like let's say an orange peel skin right and so some people i think when it first came out they could find that they could also unlock their phone with like other fingers not just their own and and so even then they didn't have like a temperature sensor i don't think that like iphones right now still don't have like a temperature sensor when you do your thumbprint scan because they also don't use a thumbprint really anymore oh they don't use the thumbprint anymore yeah they don't i don't i don't, I don't have an iphone so i have no idea they're on a, i'm an android it's a face map now oh is yeah. it face okay sorry which opens up a, a completely different sort of issues with <laughs> different <laughs> different types of can they recognize our face social with issues on? uh no so if they there's a workaround yeah. they if you hold a if you have an Apple Watch with your phone, yep. you have to, and your Apple Watch is authenticated, it'll let you unlock, but you have to be in proximity. There's a lot of other software stuff at play yep. to let that happen. Oh, so interesting. Um, but that, again, cycles through the day. So it's not going to be like, oh, unlock once and you can unlock forever. It's going to prompt you for actually seeing your face. At some point. So there's like a, a limit. Code. Usually there's always, we call yeah. it a limit, right? There's always a limit, even within credit cards. There's a limit of how many times yeah. you could do it before it's like, no. And it won't let you do the second order of uh, unlock. So I can unlock my mm-hmm. phone with my watch. But if I try to authenticate and get into my banking app, for example, which does uh, go by face ID as well. Yep. That will not unlock with my watch. I do have to show my physical face or enter the password and get the, um, you know, two-factor authentication and everything done. Ah, okay. Yeah. Wait, is that super secure? Sorry, I, 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 my, I don't know. Maybe my Android doesn't do that. Where for banking apps, like you just look at your face. So, so the it depends the face, what you enable, right? Yeah. So, the face ID on an iPhone is not a facial recognition camera. Mm-hmm. It's it it does actually have an infrared projector that's mapping your face in 3d so it can recognize you in the dark and everything it's not looking at the mm-hmm. a normal photograph oh so then that means they're, they're looking for like a forensic uh data points on your face then right like yeah, your so cheekbones it's, it's your, your, yeah so, it's a it's a full dot projection but if someone had a similar definitely. face shape to you then doesn't that mean that they could get into your phone uh i think they've tried it it has worked i think only in very rare circumstances with like super identical twins maybe because if i remember right right within a face itself like if that's what they're Mm -hmm. doing is the facial dot expression i Mm -hmm. if i remember right there was like a study and they said there's actually only like 26 permutations of every single point of your face 
I mean, of course, which which gives you a lot, but there is the high possibility chance of someone with an identical face. I mean, we're a population of what seven billion in yeah. the world. Yeah. There's a there's a chance that someone has the exact same identical. Um, I think it's. I feel like it was twenty six that I read. So like like your nose itself, that point, like the high point and the low point. There's only twenty six variations for each point, and then like your cheekbone location, that kind of stuff. I feel like I can't remember exactly, but I think I read something like that. Karina is laughing because she wants to say that I have a bigger nose and therefore I have more than. 26 permutations on my nose <laughs> is that it now it's now she's saying definitely that it's not more than it's definitely more than 26 like it, but i mean because it's like the permutation of like every point right so that's why you can get someone who has the same identical face as you in like another part of the world Ign- ignoring <laughs> ethnicities or whatnot just like bone structure unless i okay. guess you break your face then that's, so, that's like a whole different well, thing then, that's so harsh. if you if you if you break your face and ch- or change your face, like plastic surgery or whatever, yeah. you would have to remap it and do a full new face map. Yeah. I think it's a few thousand points that they take. Okay. And there's a bunch of software stuff happening in the background that's closed source and obviously no one, not no. open to us to, no, to check. Not open to us. But I think from what I what I know of and what I've read, it works generally quite well. You know, they've they've had people, you know, they've had like rewards out for people to try and try and hack it. I think it's it's generally worked quite well, though they have said that with children and like identical twin children, yep. you may have issues there because their faces are still changing and developing. Oh uh, yeah. Oh, so they have to have like a disclaimer, like if you know below the age of like I don't know fourteen, your face is. Constantly I think it's changing. yeah. I think it's I think it's thirteen or something. They have a disclaimer saying that that you may need to remap every so often and all of that. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. That's cool. I, no I didn't idea. know. Yeah. Sorry. Non-app. So that's 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 treated as equivalent or better than the old thumbprint style mm-hmm. one and in gen- general it was but obviously with with covid now the the thumbprint <laughs> became a lot more useful uh, appealing because you had to wear your mask everywhere yeah so. <laughs> that makes me intrigued i wonder if like the next generation of smart cards moves because i mean a lot of the current ones are all biometric if like the future mm-hmm. we move towards facial recognition oh but then it would mm-hmm. be like facial recognition at the terminals not on the card itself yeah, or, hope so. I mean, Otherwise, it's a lot of the, power in the it's card. It's one step removed now if you use Apple Pay, right? Because mm-hmm. you'll authenticate with your face yeah. on your phone and then use your phone to make the, the payment. Yeah. But uh, yeah, interesting stuff. Personally, I, I think I think I would have preferred if Apple retained both the fingerprint and the face, and it's a two-factor login process. Oh, they don't I think give that you would be quite both secure. now. It's just one only. Nope. Yep. Not, yeah. So right now it's one or the other, but a lot of people have said they would like the option of having both mm-hmm. as well as the passcode. So thumbprint, face, and the passcode authentication if you want it super secure. Yeah. No, that makes sense. All right. So I think we are at about time to wrap up unless you have more questions, Fra. Uh, no, I think we're running out of time and there are way too many yeah. questions still to ask. So, <laughs> so yeah. like part can... two in the future can take it offline or maybe a follow-up in future yeah. i guess all right well anyway this is super interesting i think uh very cool how you uh segued from you know architecture to to white hat hacking and i think the keeping an open mind willingness to learn probably a big takeaway here yeah that's like the for, biggest uh, thing pretty much applicable advice across really any job i think yeah, yeah. like and subscribe for part two for real i thought you were kidding (laughs) uh so yeah i think my my takeaway is not really a takeaway it's just the comment of we don't know a lot of what's going on in our in the things that we use every day right and you are 
trying to help out people that really don't understand those things to to be a little bit more secure without them knowing needing to do any, anything about it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Which is uh, a very good community service. Thanks for listening to Work It. For more information and behind-the-scenes images, take a look at our website, workit.stream. This podcast was created by Francesco Azola and Karina Arianto. Hosted by Francesco Azola and Nala Natrajan. Recorded in sunny Singapore. Music by Justin Arianto. Thanks to Anna for joining us today. We'll see you next time with another reason why every role kills it. The jobs you thought you knew and the people who do them. <laughs>